I'm reading for the New Living Translation today, and this will be our guiding text for today's time. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, I pray, Father, that as prayers have already been prayed, God, that this word would go forth with clarity. Lord, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you in this place. Before we go on, I just invite you to just take a moment to recognize that your God is here. Go ahead and in your own words just begin to welcome his presence. Lord, we're here for you today. Your glory, your praise, your honor, your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. You may find a seat. Good morning, church on the rock. It's been a couple weeks since I've been with you. It is good to be back. How are you doing? Happy good. <laughs> good, Justin, good, good. Did you know that I, I think about you guys? It's been two weeks since I've been up here, and, and I, I think about you while I'm away, even if I'm not preaching or in the office. I, I believe it is the, 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 the traditional or the definition of a pastor is a person that takes care or takes charge or takes care of a group, a community, their health and their finances, their spiritual growth. He or she is there to tend to them. And so I, I think about you guys. While I was away, I, I prayed over you. I prayed over your health and your well-being. When I see prayer requests come in on the email chain, I add them to my prayer list, and I make sure that I take time to pray over those. I pray over your finances. I pray that you be financially stable and well. I pray for your physical health. I pray for your emotional wholeness. I pray for your spirit-filledness. I pray that you would know God. As I was preparing this message, this is actually my second time preparing it. I had this message prepared a few weeks ago and then felt God shift in service, and so I didn't preach this message. And then when I came back, I'm like, I don't have to prep this week. I already have a message. And then it felt like God said, no, that was, um, I'm glad you did that, but you're not going to do that. We're doing something else. <laughs> so great. Thanks, God. And so this is a different message. And so the, the thought that I came with this message is the thought that's been in the back of my head is it's been two weeks. How are you doing? If you could just take a moment to think about the last two weeks, how have you been? What things have you struggled against and prevailed? What temptations or frustrations came against you? 
What things did you go and seek God about that you needed help with? How have you been? This is May 28th. We are 148 days into this year so far. Can you believe that? We only have 217 days left until January 1st of 2024. It is almost June. It's crazy to me. Are you becoming the person that you resolve to become on January 1st? In the last couple of weeks, have you moved the needle closer to the person of love that you want to be? Closer to that person of Jesus that you want to be? Or to go the direction that you hoped it wouldn't go? Today we're going to be talking about building that strong foundation. That thing that guides us and that moves us. The thing that is fundamental in our walk and our pursuit of following Jesus. We have been in this study for six months. Can you believe that? We've been studying what? The book of? For six months. We've studied six chapters, verse by verse, thought by thought. And today is the last message on the scriptures that we will cover. We are down to the very last verse. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Put on the salvation as your helmet and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Most recently, we've been doing the study on spiritual warfare inside of Ephesians. We've already looked at all these pieces of armor that Paul has talked about, the belt of truth, on the thing that everything else holds on or is hangs by. It's God's truth. That breastplate of righteousness, the things that protects our hearts and our souls, is God's righteousness imparted to us. The sandals of peace, the thing that prepares us for every situation, the good news of Jesus can prepare us for every trial that we could go into. The shield of faith that stops the spread of Satan's lies in our lives. Helmet of salvation that Amy talked about. It gives us our identity and our strength. The things that he did for us. The things that we couldn't do our own. The things that we couldn't earn. Who you are, saved by Jesus Christ. All of these elements are defensive in nature and purpose. And finally, finally, we come to our only means of offense, a sword. Finally, we have this last piece to the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And that's what we're going to be looking at today with the time that we have left. We've refer- I have referenced this, scripture, this section of Scripture heavily throughout this whole series, which is Luke chapter 4. This is the place where Satan goes into the wilderness alongside Jesus Christ, who has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, just getting baptized by the Spirit's leading, full of the Spirit, goes into the wilderness, and there he encounters Satan. And this, if you could dub it, is a duel of the fates. This is not the first time that Satan's come against humanity. If you remember in the very beginning, in a wild place, in a garden place, in an outdoor place, Satan came against humanity and tried to persuade her him, us, away from God. And in that scenario, he succeeded and humanity failed. By one man, sin entered the whole world. And here you have, again, where Satan, our, rec- our, our salvation, our redemption, 
Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan tries the same tricks, the same tactics, the same assaults that he did at the very beginning, and he applies them to Jesus. And so we're going to look and we're going to read this whole passage together and glean from it what we can about spiritual warfare and how Satan and Jesus interact in this scenario. Will Jesus prevail? Will he endure? Will our chance at redemption, our reconciliation to God come forth, or will he fall? just like we did? Will he take his eye off of God, just like we did? Will he take his life into his own hands, just like we did? The fate of humanity is at stake here again. Jesus versus Satan. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13, go all the way through, and then we're going to back up and kind of go through it a little bit. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned for the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all that time and became very hungry. One of the most obvious scriptures in the whole Bible. He ate nothing for 40 days and he got very hungry. Hmm. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scripture says people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says... He will order his angels to protect you and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scripture also says you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. To me, this is the greatest passage or greatest example that we have in scripture of what it looks like to withstand the demonic attack of Satan. Again, the tactics used here are not what we think of, though, when we think of a spiritual assault. From a, young, from a young age, we are taught, right, this, that sticks and stones will break my bones, but words don't have power over us. Words can't hurt us. And so when I hear about it in the Christian realm, when we talk about spiritual warfare, it's usually referenced more to a person or to a circumstance or to our preference than a verbal attack, an attack on our mind. More times when we talk about spiritual warfare, it looks more like my enemy on the opposite political aisle that I'm on. Or my enemy is I-90 when it's backed up with traffic. Satan must be stopping me from getting home to be the father I'm supposed to be. The enemy is a faulty water heater, a malfunctioning car, an overdue bill, a frustrating family member. But Satan's primary offensive assault on you is the manipulation of truth and the spreading of lies. 
He doesn't need to get you to do the wrong thing. He just wants you to convince you that the right thing is not the right thing. He wants to take a truth and bend it, manipulate it, torture it, turn it just a little bit, poison it just a little bit, and all of a sudden that truth has no power over your life. All of a sudden that truth has sent you off this, whole, this way, completely away from God's word. So look at this. Look at what Satan does. Verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, how often have you sinned because of a false identity? God never said you were less than you are. But we listen to the accuser and we believe his lie. If you really are who God says you are, then why do you still have fits of anger? Surely a saved person wouldn't react to that way. If you are who God really says you are, why do you still fail so much? If you are who God says you are, why aren't you as good as fill in the blank? Right before service started today, me and Matt Breda were talking in the lobby about how from the young age all the way till now forever, there's always a person that's better at something than me. If God really said I was the person for this job, why can't I preach better? If God really said I, I was supposed to be the husband I'm supposed to be, why am I not better at it? Why am I not like that guy? If God really said I'm supposed to be a father, a dog owner, a book writer, a nurse, a teacher, a mother, a father, you fill in the blank. Why am I not as good as them? You weren't called to control the results, you were just called to be faithful to your calling. If you're really the son of God, he comes and attacks his identity. If you're really a follower of Jesus, then why aren't you better at it? An accuser comes and he begins to slip in. And he begins to use words in your own head, whisper things in your mind. If I was really saved, then I wouldn't be anxious anymore. If God was really in control, he wouldn't let this thing happen to me. If I was really loved, then these circumstances wouldn't go the way they just went. And we begin to question our identity and God's identity. In 1939, there was an experiment run on children that has become since then to be given the name the Monster Study. In this study, scientists took a handful of children and repeatedly and systematically told half of them that they stuttered or showed signs of a child that would begin to stutter. Very, very quickly, the scientists realized that they were having psychological negative effects on the children. None of them went on to stutter, but all of them from that experiment went on to have extreme, traumatic elements in their life they could not get through. All of them showed tendencies of reserve. They stopped speaking in fear of saying the wrong thing. They would start speaking and immediately apologize for saying things that they thought they had said wrong. And they realized that they had done something, hurt something, broken something in children because they got them to believe that they had a stuttering problem. The scientists immediately stopped the experiment and they went back in and tried to do positive therapy. But they realized that no amount of positive therapy was enough to outweigh the negative implanted lies that they had put into the children's heads. 
thus being deemed the monster study because of what they had done. None of these children had suffered a speech impediment before. All of them struggled, though, in various ways after the experiment because lies that had been spoken to them became truths that governed their lives from there on. Read scripture. Read how God speaks about you. Read the tone that he applies to you. But Satan comes along and says, if that's really the case, if you're really the son of God, then do this. And we get off and we get wrong and we go away from what God's called us to be. So Satan attacks Jesus, not with pain, not with torture, but with his words. But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what scripture says about him. Jesus knows the prophetic words that have been spoken about him years and years before. He knows the fulfillment of those words in his life. And so the lie falls short on truth. So Satan goes, ah, Jesus, you're securing your identity, but, be, but perhaps I could sway you by questioning God. Perhaps I could persuade you and take a different route, a different tactic to get you away from God's way. Jesus is king of kings, lords of lords, and one day every knee will bow and confess that as truth. But Satan says, well, I know that you know that you're the son of God. I know that you know that, but listen, why, why don't I just give you all of that stuff right now? We could just skip all that ugly crucifixion business. Like that cross, we don't have to make that a part of your story. I, look at all of these kingdoms. Look at all this power. Look at all these things I could give you right now. And you could skip it all. All you have to do is worship me. All you have to do is do an easier way than the way that God's leading you to go. All you have to do is compromise your morals just a little bit. All you have to do is question God. If you're really the son of God. Okay, you're the son of God. How about I give you all these thrones, all this glory. All you have to do is don't do what God's saying. This is literally the oldest trick in the book. Questioning God and taking control from God and choosing to control our lives instead. In the garden, Satan said, did God say that you would really die if you eat that fruit? You're not going to die. You're going to become like a god yourself. If you remember a few months, about a year ago now, preached a message called Baby Mama Drama. And we talked about Sarah, and we talked about her taking control away from God's promise, saying you will have offspring, you will have unlimited numbers of generations that follow you, and saying this isn't happening how I thought it would, so I must take control here, here Abraham, take my, my slave, my servant, and marry her, and maybe this is the route. All of it, again and again, you can find place after place after place in scripture of people, of us, not choosing not to believe that the, what God said he will do, he will do. And taking control from him and figuring out a way for us to make it happen ourselves. You weren't called to the results. You were just called to be faithful. We are called to obey God, to follow God, and the rest is up to him. And so Satan questions him. 
Let's skip all of that. I'll give you all the accolades. You can be king of kings. You can be lord of lords. Just worship me instead of God. But yet it doesn't work. And then we get to this second, this, this second assault fails, and so we get to this v- very last thing, and Satan throws his secret weapon at Jesus. Satan uses scripture on Jesus. He literally quotes the Psalms. This is Psalms 91, 11 through 12. He says, For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot as a sto- on a stone. Satan knows his Bible. Satan knows the Bible probably better than we do. And he takes verses and manipulates them. And he does the same thing. Takes a truth, uses it out of context, uses it in a wrong way. And he gives it to you and he feeds it to you. And he says, look, here, use this verse out of context to support your agenda. Northrop Fry says it this way. The immediate context of one sentence in Scripture, any sentence in Scripture, is as likely to be 300 pages off as it's to be the next preceding sentence. God's word is this immersive text, and you cannot just open it and pull this half verse, this half truth out to accomplish my will. We do not change God's word to fit our comfort zone. We approach God's word and let it change us. Oh, but I really don't like what the Bible says about sexuality. It's uncomfortable. It's culturally not normal. It's culturally offensive. So that's probably not what God's word actually means. And that church preaches that that's what it actually means. So I bet that there's another church, another pastor, another way to read the Bible to make it fit how I want it to fit so it's comfortable for me. Okay, let's switch it and go do that. That sounds good. Uh, I've heard this before. If God's a God of love, then why would he deny you? Why would he make you deny yourself? I I don't know. All I know is that God is God, and this is God's word, and I change to fit God's word and not change God's word to fit what I want. Because it's not my kingdom. I don't like what the Bible says about roles, about gender, about my finances, about my money, about forgiveness, and blah, 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 blah. There's lots of things in the Bible that are uncomfortable. Lots of things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Lots of things in the Bible that are culturally not normal. That direct us to live our lives differently. And that's okay. You're in good company. Because it goes back to, do you trust that God is God? Do you trust that God really cares about you? Do you give control over your life to God? When you prayed, however it looked for you, by yourself, with a friend, at an altar like this, Jesus, I invite you into my heart. You are my king, my Lord, and my savior. Did you mean it? Did you mean that Jesus has lordship over your life? Did you mean that Jesus has kingship over your life? Did you mean that God's word, that his word has authority over your life? So here Satan goes. He takes a little bit of scripture. He manipulates it. He changes it. He pulls it out of context. And he says, here, Jesus, look. You're quoting the Bible at me. I can quote it back at you. How about now? How about now? Will you compromise? 
but Jesus knows his Bible. And more importantly, by knowing his Bible, he knows the Father's heart. See, because when you read this Bible, some of us approach it and we just want the facts. I, I just want to know the right verse and the right scripture to pull up at the right time. Well, this person doesn't believe my kid, my neighbor, my blah, blah, blah. I just, they don't believe the same way I do, so I'm going to find every verse on blah, blah, blah and send it to them, and maybe I'll get to change their mind so they'll believe what I believe. No. This is the words of God. This is God, the, the place most accessible to hear his voice in your life. And when you read it, you're not just reading facts. You're not just reading uh, 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 accounts of how things, historical accounts. You are reading a person that wrote a letter to you. And as you begin to read it, you begin to understand the author. And you begin to understand who it is. And you understand that it's not just words. It's not just facts. It's not just information. It's a person. And you begin to know God. You begin to understand who he is. But then you get off there too and you say, well, now I know God and that's not really what God means. And then you have scripture that grounds you and pulls you back to, no, this is who God is. You know, the reason that Amy and I, almost nine years ago, first came and decided to stay in this church because the person on stage that was preaching talked about a move of the Holy Spirit, but they grounded it in God's word. Because I had been raised Pentecostal. So Pentecostal, I didn't even know I was Pentecostal. <laughs> I've been raised Pentecostal. And I've traveled around and went to all these, I think I counted up, I've been in, highly involved in six or seven different denominations in my life. On a leadership or staff capacity. And so I've seen different cultures, different contexts of the Bible, and different ways, to, different ways of Christianity. In some of those charismatic services, I saw emotion, and I saw hype, and I didn't see a grounding of God's word. We know the Father's heart. Daddy, that's the churches I, look, I get scared of, is the churches that call him Daddy. I don't, I, yes, he's intimate Father, he loves you, but don't call him Daddy. He's your God, okay? <laughs> and so they get all, and they get crazy, get emotional, and there's things that are happening, say, that's, what is that? Where's that in the Bible? Why are they doing that? And so I came to this church and I found a, a, a pastor, I found a, a leadership team that preaches God's words, opens themselves up to a move of the Holy Spirit, believes what God's word says, and lets God's word anchor them and keep them in truth. And so that's what God's word does for you. It reveals a person to you, keeps you on safe ground if you open yourself up to the Bible's leadership in your life. You can't control it. You can't manipulate it. You have to come and encounter it, and when you come and encounter the Bible, you encounter a holy God. Amen? Okay, we're way off. We're coming back to my notes now. Okay. The goals of the armor of God, the whole point that Paul is driving Ephesians 6 to is that we would, What? He says it four times. You know the word. Stand firm. 
Verse 10, he says, stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Verse 13, he says, put on every piece of God's own armor so that you will be able to withstand the enemy. Verse 13 says, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. And verse 14 says, stand your ground. In this context, what Paul is teaching on is that spiritual warfare is all about standing your ground. And when I think about that and the overwhelming defensive nature of the armor of God, before I jumped into this, I would think of spiritual warfare. I would think of two linemen coming up to the line, just waiting for the snap, and then boom, hit each other, trying to see who has more power, who can knock the other person over, trying to gain a physical advantage over them. But now I look at scripture and I look at all of these things that how Paul has been laying it out for us. Defensive, defensive, defensive. Stand your ground, stand your ground, stand your ground. I look at Satan coming against Jesus in the wilderness and instead of a physical assault on him, I see a parent waiting out a child's tantrum. Jesus knew his position. He knew his Bible. He knew who has won. He knew all of the right things. If you're a parent or a babysitter or a teacher ever had to watch a, a niece or a nephew and they, in their twos or threes, hopefully not more than beyond that, started throwing a tantrum, going on the ground, just letting it all out, letting the world know how terrible of a person you are. You have a couple options. You could, you could give in. You could say, oh, you know, whatever you want, baby. You want ice cream before you go to bed? You want ice cream in bed? Here you go. Just shut up and get in there. You could let it snap you and you could abuse and use your force on them. Shut up! I'm the parent. Get in there. Or you can withstand. It takes a tremendous amount of power. It takes a tremendous amount of love to be able to sit there and let that toddler wail and scream as they test every boundary, every word that you've said. Are you really who you say you are? Will you, is your no really no? Can I get out of bed more? Can I go and do this? Do I have to count to 10? How, is it really 10? Is it more like 20? Will you start over again? And you sit there and you withstand that assault and that child realizes that you're an authority. And then what do they do? when the devil had finished tempting Jesus he left him until the next opportunity came spiritual warfare friends this, this word this book tells you everything you need to know to withstand to remain standing to weather the assault of Satan on your life every lie everything that comes into your life every doubt every frustrating trial and it's coming it's coming, Satan's coming, he's looking for an opportunity, he's looking for when your job doesn't go the way it will go, where you want it to go. He's looking for that doctor's report that comes in, it's not what you thought it was gonna be. He's looking for that painful, hurtful relationship. He's looking for the thing to jump in and to attack you and to see, see, God's not really who he said he is. See, God really doesn't care who you are. See, God doesn't really love you. He remains standing. Weather the storm. Stand your ground. And you weather the storm, and you withstand it. You persevere. And guess what? He's going to come again. He's going to come again, and he's going to do it all over again. You know, you can do that, and, and <laughs> our kids, uh, 
I love all of our kids, and one of them's right here. He's, he's a great, they're great. <laughs> it's all good, TJ. Everything's fine. You know where they're most well-behaved? At home. You know where we've had the most uh, fun moments in parenting? In public, when everybody's looking, when I'm on stage preaching. <laughs> when there are tons of eyes at the worst possible moment. Satan will do the same to you. He is looking for the moment where he can jump in. He's looking for the moment where you are at your weakest, where you're at your most vulnerable. Will you prevail? How have you been these past two weeks, friends? Have you endured? You have to build a strong foundation. It's interesting that Jesus didn't say, wait, Satan, let me go search my Bible and find the right verse to quote back at you. In the moment of trial, at his weakest, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water, he had the right words at his disposal. He had the right scripture in the time when he needed it. The sword of the Spirit is this thing that we build upon day after day as we grow, grow into proximity to God. Okay, let me tell you about this. So uh, I grew up in a place called um, Huntington, Indiana. Actually, it's called Roanoke, Indiana, but none of you will know where that is. So it's by Fort Wayne or Huntington or a Boyd, and maybe some of you will know where that is. Huntington, there's nothing there, but there's some other towns. And so right next to us, they built this brand new hotel when I was a teenager. And it was a beautiful thing. It was going to be awesome. I mean, it was going to be like, yay, we can finally put the in-laws out of our house in there when they visit. It's going to be wonderful. And so they're building this amazing, state-of-the-art, beautiful hotel. And over a year and a half in the project, and a hotel employee not a contractor, not a construction worker, one of the hotel employees was walking up the stairs one day and saw a big crack in the floor. They said, what's going on here? And they started researching and figuring out, and they realized that there were major, major problems going on with the hotel. And so after they did a bunch of uh, uh, investigating, they discovered that an inadequate foundation had been poured they had not taken into account the weight over time in sinking into the ground. They had not tamped or stamped the ground firm enough when they poured the foundations of the footers for the hotel. And just over the course of the year, one side of the whole structure, think of a hotel with how many floors it has, had sunk five inches. And so what we had was the Leaning Tower of a Boyd, Indiana, <laughs> without any of the tourism. And the problem was only going to persist and go longer and longer. So the fix, $2.6 million to fix the footers, to fix the foundation, or $300 to knock everything down that they had built and start the whole project over again. All because the part that no one can see, the part that no one cares about, the part that is literally buried under dirt was subpar, inadequate, and insubstantial to bear the weight of the structure. God's word in your life is a foundation on which the rest of your life is built. And if it is inadequate, the things that people don't see you doing in the morning, 
the things that people don't see, your thoughts, meditating on God's words, the things that people don't understand, this is how I view the world and, and go about, uh, this is how I'm going to approach finances and sexuality and my family and community and all these things. They don't realize that this is what you're building your life on, but this is the thing that holds everything else up. When you begin to build a foundation, when you begin to have a foundation of God's word under your life, it does incredible things for you. It gives you the resources and the support you need in times of struggle. God's word, it defends you in times of trials. It gives you uh, strength in times of moral weakness. God's words guides you when you don't even know where you're going. My teens and right when I was becoming into, uh, uh, into my 20s, I found a couple different verses. And there's a couple different struggles that I've gone through in my life. One of them is feeling like nobody really likes me. Nobody really cares about me. People say I love you, but they don't really mean it. And when I'm unhealthy mentally, when I'm physically run down, when I'm spiritually far away from God, those lies creep back into my life and they say, nobody cares about you. This has all been good luck so far, but it's gonna come dumbling down soon. So when I was 19, I stumbled across Romans chapter eight. Neither heights nor deaths, neither spiritual powers, principalities, da, 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 can ever separate you from God's love. I'm reminded that God loves me. When I, when I failed as a father, as a pastor, as a person, as a follower of Jesus, and my tendency is to start hating myself. Oh, you suck. Oh, you're the worst. Oh, man, I can't believe that you've messed up again. I remember Romans 5.8. While they were still sinners, Christ died for him. Oh, so I didn't have to earn it, deserve it. I didn't have to do anything to get God's favor or his sacrifice. I can be, I can fail, I can mess up, and Christ would still sacrifice all over again for me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Again and again and again. Lord, things aren't happening as I want it to go. I don't know what to do next. Like, I, I, we tried this and it failed. Lord, I thought if we did this, more people would come. Lord, I thought if we went this route, this health thing would resolve itself. No. Don't lean on your understanding, lean on the trust in God. He'll make your path straight. One of my biggest places of anxiety when it comes to pastoring is preaching. Lord, Ephesians study ends in one week. What else are we gonna talk about? We've covered everything in the Bible. There's nothing left. Lord, there's nothing left. Lord, there's nothing. They want more stories. What do I give them? I don't know. And ever since I stepped into office, the, the, the verse that God has repeatedly been giving me over and over again is, give us today our daily bread. What am I doing right now? I'm showing you these are all the areas that are unique to me, things that I struggle with, weaknesses that I have in my life. And specific scripture that for 15, 20 years, yeah, 20-ish years, Jesus has, God has repeatedly brought these scriptures again 
and again and again to my mind. Some people like to call them life verses or scriptures that just guide them or ground them or protect them or help them, things they have to keep in their mind and be forefront of their, their thoughts. I don't know what all of, I know some of your guys' struggles, but I don't know all of your guys' struggles. And I certainly don't know the right words that you need to give you the strength that you need to endure, to withstand, to remain standing, to stand your ground. You are responsible for the foundation that you build your life on. So where do we begin? Where do I start? Daily encounters of close proximity to God's word. This could look so many different ways, guys. It could look like putting that sticky note on your phone at the night before you go to bed saying, I will read one chapter of my Bible before I touch my phone. It could look like getting the dwell tattoos that you put on here and you read them every day. They're not permanent tattoos. You just read them and you read them until you memorize it. It could look like putting sticky notes around your house like my wife does. I'm like, why is there another sticky note? It could look like getting up early and reading your Bible. On your lunch break, going to your car, reading your Bible. The last thing you do, you've made a commitment before I go to bed, when I shut off my reels and shut off TikTok, I'm going to read my Bible. But you have to do it. However it looks for you, there's so many ways to get this book into your life. You just have to start doing it. And time after time, day after day, brick by brick, you will begin to build a strong foundation on which you can build your house. Psalms 119.105 says, The Lord, your word is a lamp to guide my feet, is a light for my path. In pre-service prayer today, Linda Anderson prophetically prayed out, Lord, I believe there is darkness around where people don't know which way to go. They're, they're, they're directionless, God. They're insecure. They're confused. They're, they're helpless, Lord. Give them the right path up their path. She didn't know what I was talking about today. She didn't know I was ending my scripture today with this verse, my sermon today with this verse. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. Friends, how have you been the past two weeks? Are you enduring? Are you standing your ground? Are you remaining steadfast? Maybe your answer is no. It's been a bad couple of weeks not been the person I wanted to be. I didn't read my Bible like I, you tell me all the time to do. Well, there's scripture that says his mercies are new every day. You get to start again tomorrow. There's verses in here, chapters in here that tell you how much God loves you. If they'll turn to me, I will turn to them. They die because they don't know me. If you draw close to me, I'll draw close to you. And so it all begins again. And you can do it all again right now but you have to do it. James says you can't just be a hearer, but you have to be a doer. You have to begin to build things into your life, practices that will intentionally put you in proximity to God. And one of the simplest, easiest places to do that is to read your Bible. I've heard people say, I, don't, I can't hear from God. 
I pray and I don't hear his voice, I don't know his will, I don't get the feeling on my stomach, but you have a Bible or you have a church staff that buys Bibles to give you if you need a Bible. And here is chapter after chapter, verse after verse of God's word that was written so that you could have it. It's accessible, it's tangible, it's right here. All you have to do is open it and read it. And day after day, you will build this strong foundation where you will 